Hey, good morning and welcome to Faith on Hills online Sunday service. We meet every Sunday in person and online. Our uh, Bible studies premiere every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. And if you are here on our website, faithonhill.com, or on our Facebook, uh, we are glad that you are here. Say hello in the chat. We would love to know that you're here. If you have a prayer request, you can throw it out in the chat and let us know. Now, we also know that not everybody's listening uh, in live at the moment that this premieres. So if you're listening later, uh, maybe you're listening to the Apple Music podcasts or the Spotify podcast, uh, you just have to search Faith on Hill on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify for an audio version. Uh, if you're watching later on the Facebook video, we are glad you are here as well. Uh, during the week, we get together online on Zoom every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. If you don't have the uh, Zoom link for that, you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com. Also during the week, every Thursday, we release an episode of our 20-minute Bible study podcast that is currently going through the book of Exodus. If you have a Bible, open to the book of Daniel, chapter 5. I believe that we are worshiping God right now. And you might think, wait, where's your guitar, Adam? You're not singing. I believe that the worship of God is so much more than just singing, although certainly singing is a part of it. We worship God with our voices and our hearts when we sing. We worship, excuse me, we worship God with our minds and our spirits and our voices when we pray. We worship God with our body and our strength when we serve Him through physical acts of service. We worship God with our hearts and our minds when we read the Bible, His Word, when we submit to His Word, when we let our ears listen, our brains receive, our hearts take hold. And so let us worship God together with the reading of His Word. Daniel chapter 5 starting in verse 1, says, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for thousands of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, a finger of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched as the hand wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made third highest ruler in the kingdom." Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified. His, grace, his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. 
May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. And he did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, has found to be keen of mind and knowledge and understanding. Also, the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and understanding, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men, the enchanters, were brought before me to read this writing, to tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now, I have heard that you were able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read the writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple. You will have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself. You may give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor because of the high position he gave him. All the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted put to death, he put to death. Those he spared, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. Those he wanted to humble, he humbled. When his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets them over anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have had the goblets from his temple brought to you. You and your nobles, your wives, your concubines drank from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which cannot see nor hear nor understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent his hand, he sent the hand that wrote this inscription. Verse 25, this is the inscription that was written, many, many, tekel, parson. Here is what these words mean, many. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And Perez, or Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar commanded Daniel to be clothed with purple, the gold chain placed around his neck. He was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede 
took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This is God's word. I believe we can trust it. We can live by it. We can honor it. And we can be thankful for it, that God has spoken to his people and given us his word. Exiles can't change the world. I know that that is not the common thing to hear, right? If you grew up in 90s youth group culture the way I did around church, you heard something like this. You guys are going to be world changers. Uh, you, guys, you guys are going to be a Joshua generation. And, and what was meant by that, and I heard that phrase often at youth summer camps, was that Moses led God's people out of their slavery and captivity, but Joshua went and conquered the land of Israel. And you guys are going to do greater things than your parents' generation, just like Joshua did greater things than Moses. So you guys are a Joshua generation. And it is not uncommon at all to hear preachers talk about living out your destiny, changing the world. You guys are going to be world changers. You guys are going to be influencers. And if you've been around youth ministry in churches for the last 30 years, you've heard that. And maybe you've heard it in adult ministry as well. Exiles can't change the world. Now, this starts off, our, our, our passage this morning starts off with the king, Belshazzar, throwing a party. Daniel doesn't tell us that the city is surrounded. Is he saving a surprise ending? Maybe. It's also very possible that he just assumes that everybody reading knew that. The same way that if I started a story, if I started a story that said, this story begins... 7 a.m. on September 11th, 2001. Then every reader knows where this story is going or, or, or something that's going to happen. Something will be affected by 9-11. You understand that if it starts at 7 a.m. East Coast time on September 11th, 2001, you understand where this is going. That this would have been such a major event in in. Middle Eastern culture in that day and for decades and even hundreds of years afterwards, that to say these names and this, this event, it would have just been understood, oh, this is the time that the Medes and the Persians conquered the Babylonian Empire. But, of course, we don't know that. The same way that if, if we were to say, you know, this starts at 7 a.m. on September 11, 2001, and we would all know what that means, but maybe our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren or people 100 years from now, it, it might not click. Even, even kids today, it might not immediately click for them. You know, my, my sons only this last year found out what 9-11 was. So, so not necessarily would everyone understand now what's going on, but in his day, everyone would have understood. Daniel didn't make this mess. None of the exiles made this mess. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not make this mess. Ezekiel, who was a prophet in the Bible in the Old Testament who lived in Babylon during the captivity, none of them made this mess. They had been messengers of God warning people, warning people, warning the king, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom will come to an end. They had warned them. They didn't make the mess. The city is surrounded. 
The enemy is at the gates, and what's the king doing? He's throwing a party. The people who should be preparing the defenses, who should be rallying the troops, who should be doing all they can so that the vulnerable, the old and the young are protected, they are getting drunk, and they don't care. The city was surrounded, the enemy was at the gate, and the king through a party. And let's be honest. There's a lot of messes that, that I've made in my own life. I've made a mistake. I've done something wrong. It's caused a lot of grief or hardship, right? But if you look at the world around you, the Christian faith has not caused this mess. The exiles in Daniel's day did not cause this mess. Sin causes the mess. Sin causes the mess. And maybe you didn't cause the mess in your own life. It, you weren't the cause of your mother's alcoholism. You weren't the cause of your abusive uncle. You weren't the cause of so on and so on and so on. All human suffering comes from sin, either my sin or the sins of someone else that affects me. So people say there's a victimless crime. I don't believe that's true. I don't believe that there's a victimless sin, that, that sin affects everything around it. And it can compile on and on and on. What's the first sin? The king was not where he was supposed to be. Instead of preparing his people for battle, he shut the gates, went into his palace, and threw a party. And then you see other uh, examples of sin. He had uh, not just one wife, he had multiple wives, and not just multiple wives, but he has these concubines there, and all of his officials have the same thing going on. So there is an abdication of responsibility to his people, to his community, and we may not process that as a sin, but absolutely people in Daniel's day would have understood that that's the case. There's uh, sexual immorality, which we can start to grasp, okay, I could see why Bible people would think that's a sin, and absolutely people in Daniel's day would have understood that to be something wrong. And then they start to drink to drunkenness. We believe in sobriety because we understand that when we lose control to substances, we open ourselves up to more pain and more sin. That, that if I lose control... I get behind the wheel, and, and I cause all kinds of misery. I, I lose control, and, and next thing you know, boom, my life has changed forever. I, I, I know guys who, who lost control, gave in to, to drunkenness, and you think, oh, yeah, you know, no big deal. You have a headache in the morning. No, their whole life was changed because they had no control, and sin compounded sin compounded sin. And the next thing you know, the rest of their life is is totally altered, and you might say ruined, because of it. And in Nebi, uh, not Nebuchadnezzar, sorry, Belshazzar's case, he's drinking, he's drunk, he's lost control, and he crosses a line. When the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem, they took with them not just the exiles, not just the captives, but they took treasure back. Now, some of it, you know, soldiers would have kept jewels and little things from individual houses. 
but the, the treasures of the temple were taken and they were placed in the storeroom of the Babylonian king. Now, the, uh, the Jews didn't have idols in their temple. They had a place to sacrifice animals before the presence of God. But they took what was there. They took the knives and the cups and the goblets and the, the, the things that were in the storehouse. They took and they brought back to their storehouse. But they hadn't been touched. For decades, they had not been touched. And here, King, Neb uh, King Belshazzar takes the things that King Nebuchadnezzar had brought back but not touched, the sacred things. There was still an understanding. We don't touch those things because they, they were uh, pantheists. They believe in all kinds of different gods, and they said, this is a sacred thing to somebody's God, and we don't want that God mad at us. So in his drunkenness, he loses control, and he crosses what even they would have understood to be a line. And he takes the sacred thing and profanes it. And then in verse 9, in verse 9, it says, King Belshazzar became terrified, his face grew pale, and his nobles were baffled. He's terrified of the work of God. And this is hard for us to understand because the Christian faith exists through the grace of Jesus Christ. The judgment of God was taken for us by Jesus on the cross, and our victory was assured when Jesus rose from the dead. So it might be hard for us to process this, but Belshazzar was experiencing not the grace of God. He was experiencing the judgment of God. And he's got this whole mess, and now he has a revelation. He doesn't understand what's happening, he doesn't, but he knows something bad is happening. And so he's looking for answers, and he calls in all of the wise men, and they can't answer. And none of his nobles, no, no one's giving him answers. And it says the queen comes, and the queen is probably the queen mother. Um, if you've ever watched the show The Crown, uh, there's a point in the first season where there's like three queens around because there's Queen Elizabeth. But then there's her mom, who's also named Elizabeth, and so she's the queen mother. And then there's uh, Mary of Tech for, for, for a few episodes, and she was like the queen two kings back. So, so there's like multiple queens around. Which queen are we talking about? The same thing's going on here. We know that Belshazzar has like multiple wives and then girlfriends on the side and all of this. So this queen is probably his mother. When it says that Nebuchadnezzar was his father, they didn't have a word for grandfather back then. You just had my fathers, you know. And, and uh, so, so there's no word for father, but Nebuchadnezzar was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar was his son. And Nebuchadnezzar was in a different part of the kingdom at this time, history tells us. And so Belshazzar was king, but he was king over Babylon. That's why when he made, um, uh, when he made Daniel third in the kingdom, it's because he was second in the kingdom. So he couldn't make him any higher than himself. But the queen mother comes and she does what a mother says. Hey, don't be alarmed. It's going to be okay. And she says, hey, there's a guy that can answer your questions for you. Exiles can't change the world. I am not going to fix, and you are not going to fix the insanity that's around us. We're not going to come to a place where everyone just stops sinning. 
We're not going to come to a place before Jesus comes back where corruption ends. We're not going to come to a place before Jesus comes back where violence is over and peace is established. But in this madness, in this world of sin, in this world of darkness, in this world of insanity, there are people asking questions and exiles can answer questions. Now, verse 17, Daniel comes in, and it helps to know who you're speaking to. You know, uh, Daniel knew who he was and knew how he could speak to the king. The king needed somebody who could be straight with him, who could just give, give real straight, clear answers to him. Now, Daniel was in a position to do that. Why? Because Daniel is really old at this point. He has nothing to lose. I worked with a guy years ago named John, and John uh, had a Boston accent. He was one of those guys, you weren't sure, is he 55 or is he 65? Full head of shock white hair, Boston accent, glasses that were always kind of hanging down on his nose. And he would say the most outrageous thing, and it didn't matter who you were. You could be the president of the company. You could be the, the, the supervisor. You could be the most important client. It didn't matter. He would say the most outrageous things. And it always ended in that person laughing because John was, he had curmudgeon status. He, he just had this ability because of how he looked and sounded and his personality to just say whatever he wanted. I do not have that ability, right? Because I, I'm not John, you know. Daniel had a unique position to speak in a very specific way to the king without fear. He's going he's gonna to say some really hard truths to him, but he had the position to do it. One of the things that happens, and I've seen it happen over the years, is somebody says, this person isn't living right, so I'm going to ask the pastor to come, and he will speak to them and, and sort them out. Well, I mean, you get asked to speak to somebody, it's like, I've never met this person. Why would they listen to me? You know them really well. If they aren't going to listen to you, why do you think they're going to listen to me? But we, we think, oh, it's somebody else will do it. Knowing who I am, who I am in relationship. I'll give you another example. When I did youth ministry for a long time. Well, it's one thing to be like 23 years old and speaking at a youth camp. And you're speaking to people that you're like six to eight years older than on average. So it's very different. When I spoke to them at age like 23, I, I've very recently been exactly where they are. Speaking to them when I'm 38, it's very different. I'm old enough to be their dad. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not a young guy. They can write me off a whole lot easier. Knowing who you are and how you present is something to be aware of. Somebody comes, they ask you a question. Hey, this is this thing I'm trying to figure out. Okay, so who am I to this person? Do I have the relational capital to speak into their life? Do I have the natural authority? You know, what happens when people say, oh, I'm going to get the pastor to speak is they're looking for somebody with positional authority. Well, he has the position of the pastor, so they'll listen to him. I'll tell you, people in our culture do not care about positional authority anymore. We care about relational authority. Do I have the relational authority to speak into somebody's life? You know, 
Those are things to think through. And so Daniel comes, there's a question on the table. What does this writing mean? Just as you might come into a situation and there's questions on the table. Why is my life a mess? What is going on with this situation? Hey, why is this such a big deal? Why do Christians care about this thing? And knowing who I am and who I am in relation to the person asking the question is going to help me, it's going to help you speak into that situation. Now, in verse 22, you know, uh, he gives Belshazzar sort of the history, the recap. Your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, he was the greatest king the Babylonians ever had. And even he was humbled because he would not bow to God. And you knew all this. Verse 22, you, Belshazzar, his son, and we would say his grandson, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. You know, one of the things that is surprising, I think, to Christians today is they assume that people know the gospel. And more and more, if I share a clear understanding of what the good news of Jesus is, and I say, have you ever heard somebody explain the Christian faith to you in that way? More and more people say no. Because we're not dealing with just first or second generation of unchurched people. We're dealing with fifth or sixth generation of unchurched people. At the same time, I firmly believe that people know more than they admit to. I firmly believe that if you were to say to somebody, this is what God says is right, and this is what God says is wrong, even if they deny it up and down, I firmly believe that they know more than they admit to. But in verse 24, we see the same thing. You know, verse 22, Daniel tells, tells him, hey, you knew all this. But then in verse 24, it says, therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. So, so he's going, hey, you knew all this. And then when God does something, when God moves in your life, you're like, wait, what? Who, me? And I think more of that goes on than we would admit or than people would admit. I think it's good for us to be aware of it as we're answering people's questions, as we're speaking into people's lives, as God gives us the opportunity. People know more than they admit. But then when they're kind of pressed on the point, they go, wait, I didn't know that. Who, me? The meaning of the writing. Now, there's disagreement. Was the writing on the wall Aramaic, which would have been the common language of the Babylonians? Or was the writing on the wall Hebrew, which is why it says that they couldn't understand the writing. The ancient texts that we have for the book of Daniel, starting in chapter 2 and going until uh, through uh, chapter 6, is in Aramaic. It's one of the few parts of the Bible that's not in either Greek or Hebrew. Most of the Old Testament's in Hebrew. And almost all of the New Testament is in Greek, except for specific places. Daniel is the exception where a large part of the book is written in Aramaic, which was the language that was common to the Babylonians. Actually, it would likely be the language that Jesus preached in more often than not, because it was the common language of the Middle East back then. That was the influence of the Babylonian Empire, the same way that the Spanish Empire doesn't really exist anymore, but the influence of Spanish across Central and South America is vast. 
But what it means, and I personally, just from context, I personally believe that it was written in Hebrew, and that's why Daniel could read it. But if it was written in Aramaic, and they saw the words, but they couldn't figure out what does it mean. Because what it's saying is, weighed, or sorry, counted, counted, weighed, lacking. Sorry, excuse me. Uh, Counted, counted, weighed, divided. Forgive me, I know what that means. So, uh, many, many, count, uh, weighed, weighed, uh, sorry, counted, counted, uh, tekel, weighed, uh, parson or perez is divided. And and so what, what Daniel's saying here is you've been numbered. Your days have been numbered. God has has said, this is it for you. And he knows the beginning and the end, the start and the finish of your kingdom. And the finish is now. And he says, you've been weighed. God's, God's looked at you, put your life on the scales, and you have been found wanting, and your kingdom will be divided. Belshazzar met God. God looked at his life. God found him wanting. And when people come and they ask questions, I mean, sometimes the questions might have nothing to do with the Christian faith particular, not about Jesus. They might just say, hey, what do I do here? And we would speak as Christians into that situation. But if at all possible, let's remember that the only hope is Jesus. Belshazzar met God without Jesus, and he was found wanting. But Jesus lacks for nothing. Your life might be surrounded by the enemy, whatever that means for you. And it's very possible that you have been drowning out this coming destruction through substance abuse, through uh, academic achievement, through athletic achievement, through career advancement, through relationships, uh, through coping mechanisms. We see this, right? We know that substance abuse has spiked during COVID. We know that addictive practices have spiked during COVID. We know that suicide attempts and suicide rates are spiking because of everything that's going on. And maybe you're trying to drown out all the noise. We have racial tension. We have political divide. There are families who aren't even talking to each other. And you're trying to drown it all out. The kingdoms of this world are dying. If Daniel had taken, uh, you know, oh, I'll take all of your treasures. You're going to make me third most important in the kingdom. You're going to give me all this nice stuff. In just a few hours, it was all going to come to an end. In just a few hours, the Medes and the Persians would take the city and King Belshazzar would be slain. Kingdoms of this world are dying. But remember what Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar's father, or grandfather, excuse me, back in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. Hey, your kingdom's going to come to an end, and there's going to come another kingdom, and it's going to be good. It's going to be strong. It's not going to be as strong as yours, but it's going to be very strong, the Medes and the Persians. And then they will be destroyed by another kingdom, the Greeks. And then that kingdom will be destroyed by another kingdom, the Romans. And then that kingdom will be split up 
and we've seen the the all the the empires the western empires since have tried to claim some sort of connection to the roman empire but never been as strong never been as lasting and all these kingdoms are dying but what daniel told the king then is what i tell you now that god will establish a kingdom which will have no end and the great hope of the Christian faith is that this world of madness, this world of death, this world of destruction is not our home and it's not our goal. And we are traveling through. This is not where our hope is. Our hope is in the eternal reign of Christ, a kingdom of true peace, of true righteousness, of true justice. If you are standing before God right now and you feel nothing but hopeless, it's because all of our sins have brought us to that place. All of our sins deserve death. But if we stand before God with Jesus Christ as our advocate, Jesus is lacking nothing. And his righteousness, his grace, his forgiveness, his power is able to totally cleanse us of all sin, to cover us, to wipe away all sin. There is nothing that Jesus cannot deal with in your life. And so if you are not a Christian, if you do not have that assurance, if you have been trying to drown out the coming destruction in your life, then, then let me say that Jesus offers hope. And if you are a Christian and you're looking at this world of madness and you go, what can I do? We're not going to fix it. We're not going to change it. But when people come, and they will come, and they do come, we can answer their questions, and we can always bring them back to the hope of Jesus Christ. Jesus, hears your prayer right where you're at right now. Call out to Jesus. He knows you, and he still loves you, and he still forgives you. God bless you. If you have any questions about anything I've said, you can email me, adam at faithonhill.com. We'll see you next week, 10.30 a.m. This week also for the 20-Minute Bible Study Podcast. God bless you.